0: Last week, we were looking at the previous chapters, here 28 through 31, and we were seeing um, that Isaiah's primary agenda in this part of the book uh, is to convince Judah uh, and King Hezekiah of the foolishness of trusting in Egypt and laying out what God's going to do to get their attention, which is that Egypt will fail Assyria will press in all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, and then God will deliver Judah miraculously, um, which he does by an angel slaying 185,000 soldiers in a single night. Um, We're still in that section for the next two chapters. 32 and 33 are still dealing with this primary issue. So notice what he says in 32. 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Now, obviously there, he's not stating a truism. He's not just saying this is what kings and princes do. Kings are always righteous, and princes always rule in justice. Instead, he's envisioning a time when things are as they should be, where leaders lead. Remember, that's been one of his great criticism in the previous chapters is that there was foolishness in the council uh, and that there were uh, poor shepherds taking care of Israel, but he looks forward to a time where a particular king will reign in total righteousness. And then under him will be a myriad of leaders who bring about justice. Each of these princes, it says in verse two, will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place like shade of a great rock in a weary land. Notice he basically says, whatever your problem is, these princes will be like the solution. Okay. So if the problem is dryness, then they will quench your thirst. If their problem is danger from storms, then they will be your shelter. If your problem is the heat of the sun, then they will provide shade. The idea clearly here is that the leaders are acting like they should, which means protection, uh, which means giving life and not bringing death. Then, verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be closed the ears of those who hear will give attention. Remember, Isaiah has said that now is a time where God is going to harden the hearts and close the eyes and stop up the ears because they were refusing to listen, but that will not be a permanent condition. There will come a time where hearts are soft to the Lord again. It says in verse 4, the heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will will hasten to speak distinctly. Uh, In other words, the counselors will give good counsel instead of foolishness. The fool, verse 5, will be no more called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. In other words, those who are in noble and honorable positions will deserve the title. They won't be fools and scoundrels. Verse 6, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Now, what does this passage do for us? What is it supposed to do? Probably it seems relevant. It seems that when we look around, we see plenty of fools and scoundrels, we see lots of injustice and these types of things, and Isaiah paints a utopian vision where that will not be so. What, what should it, this should invoke in us, and what Isaiah is trying to evoke in his audience, is longing. It's a looking for what shall be and what currently is not. Okay, and then he continues in verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. And so he addresses specifically the the women of Israel, and he labels them uh, women who are at ease, who are comfortable. Women who are complacent, okay? And so these are the ones who have just enough wealth and just enough distance and just enough name to be unaffected by the evil that's going on in Israel. They're complacent because it doesn't affect them. They stick to their social circles, uh, you know, and their fundraiser dis- dinners and they ignore the greater issues. They lack the longing that we're talking about, right? That's the problem is even, even the, uh, those who are not in places of power, those who are not being asked their opinion, even they are in a place of complacency instead of longing. It shows that their unrighteousness goes even into the hearts of us because we have to recognize a good deal of our avoidance of sin is really just lack of opportunity, right? But when we get down to the heart, that's where the problems lie. Uh, in Plato's Republic, um, they're talking about the definition of justice. And one of the characters brings up a myth of the ring of Gyges, which is basically a ring of invisibility, And he basically says, you all know that if such a ring existed and was in your power, all rule, all authority, all law would go out the window. Why? Because there'd be no consequence. Because you'd be the invisible man. Because you couldn't be caught. Okay? That's the challenge that he makes, uh, that one of the people makes in the Republic. Uh, And it's a pretty revealing one about human nature. That... uh, the danger of consequence, as well as the uh, presentation of opportunity, are major factors in our actions as sins, but our desires as sins remain without opportunity. And so here's these women, and they don't stand as righteous because they don't long for righteousness. Remember what Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but they're full, they're satisfied, They have everything they want. They do not hear the cries of those in pain. And he says, the problem with the complacency you've built, the problem with the satisfaction you have is it will not last. Look at verse 10. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, For the grape harvest fails and the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. He says you should be mourning now because you assume next harvest is going to be like the last harvest. You assume that next year everything will be as it is. But imagine what's going on here. Isaiah knows that Assyria is going to march right up to the gates he knows that it's less than a year away, and these people are acting like everything will go on as it's always been. But the problem is, a military, uh, you know, s- surrounding of a city, a siege, cuts off the supply lines. Okay, this, this is something we may or may not understand in the modern world, but in the ancient world, the safest places to live were walled cities, and guess where the farms were? Outside the walls, right? Because you live in the city. You farm outside the city, and so they would travel in and outside. So when a siege happens, where are the soldiers? They're in your cornrows, okay? They're existing in your sustenance, and that's what makes a siege so effective, because you cut them off from their own internal supply line, not just help from other places, not just avocados on the back of a truck from California, um, but the inability to feed yourselves, and this analogy he draws here of the danger of complacency you just spiral out the timeline and it's true of all complacency so much of our satisfaction in our life is built on things that will not last okay and part of that's because you don't know what comes tomorrow and maybe it's not going to be the Assyrian armies but maybe it's going to be a pink slip right? Maybe it's not going to be uh, the disaster of a warfare, but it might be a natural disaster. Have you been thinking about that since the earthquakes hit California? Every time they come, I wonder what it would be like if the big one came, right? We don't know what tomorrow holds, but here's the irony. For humans, the the biggest ironic thing is we all know that one of our tomorrows holds death, and very few of us take the time to plan past our funeral, and that's the problem with complacency. Everything that these women find great about their lives, find satisfying, it's all gonna go up in flames. It's all gonna burn, none of it's gonna last. They haven't read apparently Ecclesiastes where the author reminds us that even your reputation will eventually be erased from the earth. Who will remember you in a thousand years? Okay. And so the problem with their complacency here is they, one, don't know what's coming and two, They really should, because Isaiah's ministry has been going on for years and years now, and the warning of prophets before him has been going on for years and years, okay? The problem with sin is when we sow sin, we plant it, and it grows, and it will bear fruit, okay? And so he continues, verse 12, he says, "'Beat your breasts for the pleasant field, "'for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people "'growing up in thorns and briars.' Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city because the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hills and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell even in the wilderness And righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Okay, so notice the pattern here. First, no justice and righteousness in the city. So you're going to lose the fruitful fields and they'll become a wasteland until God does something new. And then even the wastelands will become fruitful fields. And then on top of that, they will also become places of justice and righteousness. Okay. What's so fascinating about what Isaiah has been laying out for chapters now is that God's discipline is not final. In fact, it's productive towards Israel's righteousness. He's doing this to get their attention, to bring them to repentance. Even here it says to pour out his spirit, okay? And specifically here, I think we sug- could suggest that that is a spirit of repentance. It's a spirit of mourning. It's a spirit of desiring to get back on track. We'll see more of this in a minute. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 17, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. Okay, when, uh, when we talk about knowledge, epistemology, when we talk about thinking, we talk about the, uh, the simplicity on this side of knowledge and the simplicity of that side of knowledge. In other words, right now, the way electricity works for my kids is simple. They just flip a switch, the lights come on, right? What could be more simple than that? But if they started to study how that works, suddenly things get really complex. They get very difficult. But there is a simplicity on the other side of complexity, right? What's happened with Israel and these women is they have the peace on this side of righteousness. It's empty. There's not much to it. It won't last like we've seen, but there is a peace on the other side. In fact, read it again with me. The effect of righteousness will be peace. Where does peace come from? From righteousness. Why do we struggle to have peace on this earth? Because of sin. And we don't always make the connection. We say we want comfort and complacency and to live like hell. It just doesn't work that way. But there will come a time where there will be righteousness and therefore there will be peace. In fact, he says, secondarily, the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. Okay, that word there for trust probably isn't speaking of faith but confidence. Right? Surety. Solidity in your foundations, in what's to come, okay? As Proverbs reminds us, the way of the wicked is hard. We don't always remember that. A lot of times we think that it's easy to be wicked and hard to be righteous, but we're being short-sighted. We're falling for the deceitfulness of sin. The reality is there comes a great difficulty uh, with a life of poor decisions, selfishness, and unrighteousness. It becomes the hard way. A way, you know, where, where you're guilty and so now you're afraid of being caught. You're always expecting the hammer to fall. You're walking around on eggshells, wondering when it's all gonna fall apart, right? You're having to maintain and constantly control, okay? It's like if you lie in a circumstance and then you need three lies to make up for that lie and then it grows and grows and suddenly you're having to remember this entire false persona you've built for yourself. Does that sound easy? No, you've got notebooks and homework just to maintain the facade, right? And I can spiral this out in so many places. You know, we've known for a long time as Americans that mo' money equals mo' problems, but that is specifically because of how we get mo' money. Okay. It's because we do it in ways that are deceitful, that we do it in ways that are idolatrous. We do it in ways that don't honor God and eventually they become machinistic and demanding, enslaving, okay? Eventually they crush us. But God has better plans for us. God has better plans for Israel. He wants the peace on the other side of righteousness for them. He says in verse 18, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and quiet resting places, and it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will utterly be laid low. That seems out of place, doesn't it? In fact, look at verse 20. Happier are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Okay, one of these verses is not like the other. 17 is peace and quiet, 20 is happiness and free range, and 19 is hail and destruction. And we have to go, what's going on here? One suggestion is, is uh, that because this is going to involve, this peace is going to involve deliverance, that the hail on the forest there is judgment on the Assyrians. Okay? Now that's a real thing historically. It actually happens. So that makes sense. But it would be very strange for him to, uh, to reference that uh, if he's talking about merely Assyria. Because in the second line he says, the city will be utterly laid low. Now, the Syrians aren't the city, right? They're the siege around the city, okay? And we've been talking about the city extensively, so we can assume the city in that verse is what? Jerusalem, okay? So, two options. One, the hail and the falling in the forest here are not literal, but it's recognizing, again, this judgment that's coming on Judah, okay? It's it's the discipline that leads to righteousness, that leads to peace. Or it is the judgment on the Assyrians and God's going to do it in a way that lays low Jerusalem. Not destroys it, but humiliates it, humbles it, brings it back to square one, reminds them of who God is and who they are. Both of those, I think, are pretty good options. And both of them could be pretty well argued either looking back a few chapters or looking forward. In fact, we'll see more on that in the next chapter. So let's continue. Chapter 33. Ah, you destroyer who have not been, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Okay. It's a little like a riddle, isn't it? Okay. So we have the destroyer who's not been destroyed, also known as the traitor, who's never been betrayed. And he says, but when you're done destroying and when you're done betraying, then you'll become the betrayed and the destroyed, okay? Now, we know that this is a reference to Assyria because Isaiah has been using this title, the destroyer for Assyria, throughout Isaiah. So look back at chapter 16, verse 4. 16.4 says, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you be a shelter to them from the destroyer who was it who ran the Moabites out of Moab? Assyria. Okay. Again, look at chapter 21, verse 2. A stern vision is to me, the traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Oh, a lot of overlap here, huh? Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O media, all the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Okay. Here it talks about, uh, about a, um, a defeat of the destroyer by the Medians who become later the Medo-Persian Empire. Again, this is Assyria, okay? And so the destroyer is just Isaiah language for Assyria. And remember, they're God's appointed destroyers. They're the tool, Isaiah says, that God is using to discipline Judah as well as to judge the ten northern tribes of Israel. But notice here when it's going to happen. When is he going to bring judgment? When he's done with them. When they're done destroying. And the idea here is not, as we know from history, is not that they run out of things to conquer. It's not like Alexander the Great sitting down to weep because he's done. Okay? They're done because there's no further God is going to allow them to go their destruction has been appointed. They were hired for a job. The job is over, and now they must retire, okay? This is a statement of the fact that God is completely sovereign. There's a place, I don't remember if it's in the prophets or in the Psalms, where it basically says that God has set the boundaries for the waves and said, this far, no further, right? And so the tide comes in, but it stops, That's what Assyria is, it's a a great tide, it's a great cleansing, and it's come in and it's pressed all the way up the shoreline to Jerusalem, but that's the end of its job. It won't make it any further. As we saw a few chapters ago, because of the arrogance of the king of Assyria, and as we're going to see, because of his uh, betraying of a contract, of a covenant, of a surrender that the king of Judah made to him, God says, that's it, we're done, and he sends them packing. Okay, verse two, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in times of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourselves up, nations are scattered, and spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it's leapt upon. Okay. And so here we see Isaiah and the faithful crying out for God to deliver them. Okay. And he wants them to deliver them in such a way, he says, that a tumultuous noise, people flee. Okay. Now, what is this tumultuous noise? In Hebrew, this is the same language that's used for thunder. And the reason I bring that up is not because Isaiah is talking about a storm here, but because the voice of the Lord is regularly tied to thunder. Okay? this is the sound of God roaring, okay? And at that, the nations flee, okay? And then notice it says uh, that it leads to spoil, which again is what happens, okay? This angel in the middle of the night wipes out the entire army, and so what do they find? They find 185,000 dead and all of the spoil that comes with it, okay? And so Isaiah is calling out for this to happen. And again, I want to point out the the correlation here between the prophetic word of Isaiah, this is what will happen, and the longingful prayers of Isaiah. God, please do this. Those two things are not intention. Knowing God's plan is not the position, it's not a place that leads to complacency. It doesn't go, well, I know what God said, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. Remember Elijah. Elijah. Elijah, who is told to pray and there is no rain for three years, and then God says, okay, now's the time. I'm going to make it rain. You better tell the king that he better get ahead of the storm. And what does Elijah do next? He gets down on his face and he prays. And he prays until the storm is seen. Okay. Here, Isaiah knows the word. He's been the messenger. Thus saith the Lord, and then he says, amen, Lord, let it be as you have said. That is the normal and natural cadence of the human worshiper in relationship to the God who speaks. Okay. God speaks, and we don't just hear and do nothing. We hear and we pray. We enter into the doing of God's will by asking him to do it. Okay. Verse 5, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Sound familiar? Right? What did we learn in, verse, or in chapter 32? Where's God taking things? A king reigning in justice and righteousness. Here we see it's the Lord who's going to reign over Zion with justice and righteousness. Verse 6, he will be the stability of your times. We encountered that in chapter 33. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And so he says, here are all the things that you're going to have, Uh, stability, salvation in abundance, wisdom, knowledge, and then the key jewel of all the riches of Jerusalem is what? The fear of the Lord. Seems strange, doesn't it? You would think the fear of the Lord leads to the abundance, and he says, no, it's one of the treasures. In that super controversial but already forgotten book, The Shack, uh, there's a line uh, where the God-like character says to the main character, Honey, sin is its own punishment. Now, that's a half-truth. Okay. Sin causes consequences, and consequences hurt. In that sense, sin is its own punishment. But if you see that sentence as an denial, that there's any other punishment for sin, then you've neglected the God of Isaiah and the God of the Bible as a whole. However, here we see that righteousness is its own reward. The fear of the Lord is a treasure, right? In fact, we also have to see here that this is something that God is going to give, that even the fear of the Lord is a gift. It's something that he gives. It's something that we need him to do something we can't do to have, okay? That you can't just close your eyes and focus. Remember, this word for fear is not not merely trembling or shaking it's not like afraid of the dark fear it's a sense of reality okay it's the our God is a consuming fire and I know what that means it's the woe is me from Isaiah chapter 6 for I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips it's the full frontal reality of us in the context of who God is it's knowing that God should be the centerpiece of our decision-making process that's the fear of the Lord But here he says that it's a gift that God is going to give. And it's a gift because righteousness is its own reward. Because living a life that honors God is, surprise, surprise, the good life. Because obeying God and human satisfaction go hand in hand. It's what we were made for. It fulfills our purpose. It's what we were created to do. When we glorify God, we satisfy ourselves. Verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The travelers cease. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. Again here, this is probably... Isaiah looking out over the siege, whether he's looking at it and writing this present tense or laying it out future tense, but what he sees is the economy on hold, right? That's what highways are for, they're for commerce, okay? Uh, he sees uh, that there's there's no chance at peace. He says the envoys of peace weep bitterly, that's failure, right? They've waved the white flag, but no white flag is going to be received. And then notice it says covenants are broken. Uh, this may be referring to what happens in 2 Kings 18. And so uh, what happens in 2 Kings 18 is Hezekiah um, basically crumbles before Assyria. Okay, this is a little bit earlier on than than Shenecharib. And so here in 2 Kings 18... Verse 13, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib the king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah the king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong, withdraw from me, whatever you impose on me I will bear. And the king of Assyria required Hezekiah king of Judah three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Okay, so what's ha- what happens here? Okay, basically, Hezekiah gives up the lunch money to the bully. Okay, Assyria presses all the way in because Hezekiah, unlike his predecessor, says, We're not going to serve Assyria anymore. And so Assyria flexes their muscle and he goes, Truce. I forget it, I'll, I'll pay, I'll pay. But what happens? Just a little bit later, Assyria comes rushing in again, despite this tribute, decides maybe to make an example of Judah, but whatever it is, they break the treaty. Okay. That's what Isaiah is referring to here when he talks about a broken covenant. Now, remember that idea of a broken covenant, because it'll become pertinent in a few chapters. Okay. Um... Verse nine, the land mourns and languishes. Okay, this is one of the things we see throughout the Old Testament, a correlation between people and the land that they live in. Okay, a correlation between uh, the citizens of a nation and their environmental impact. Okay, and so here, what happens to the land happens because of what happens to the people. In fact, notice, Lebanon is confounded and withers away Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. These are the most fertile places in Israel, but there's no fertility anymore. There's no life anymore. It's all been destroyed. It's all been trampled uh, by the armies of the Assyrians. Verse 10, notice, now I will arise. When? When the fields are trampled, when the people are weeping, when the city is surrounded, when the roads are closed down, in the last and final hour. That's when God shows up. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. And then notice the last one. I think this is significant. Now I will be exalted. You see that little word there, be? That's a passive verb, right? Whereas God is the one arising and God is the one lifting himself up. In the last one, he is being lifted up. He is being exalted. He doesn't say, now I will exalt myself. He says, now I will be exalted. Why does God wait till the last minute so it's clear who saves Israel? He waits till the last minute so that they get the picture that Egypt, remember, can't protect them, that Egypt can't deliver them, that God is the powerful and almighty one that they should trust him, okay? And so now is the time I will arise because now I will be exalted. Verse 11, you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you. Okay, now notice the pronoun there, you, and then notice verse 12, and the peoples will be burned as if to lime. We've got two groups here. The you plural in the beginning is Judah. Okay, the peoples is Assyria. Okay, and so the idea here is that Instead of relying on the one who will ultimately deliver them, the one who rises up and deals with everything, the one who wipes out the entire army in the, in, the, in the night, what have they been doing for years? Plotting and scheming and coming up with their best plans. And he says it's like giving birth to chaff, okay? It's not even a stillborn, it's, it's, it's the papery stuff wrapped around wheat. It's of no value. It's not just subhuman. There's no nourishment. There's no life in it. He says, uh, your breath is a fire that will consume you. All of this talking that you're doing is just leading to destruction. All of your plans and counsels are just suicide. However, at the same time, verse 12, the peoples will be burned as if to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. So there's two things going on here again. God is bringing Israel to the end of themselves, bringing the kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah, to the end of himself, desperate for God to show up, but he will show up. And when he shows up, he will both bring judgment on Assyria and reveal and remind Judah of who he is. In fact, notice verse 13, here you who are far off what I have done and you who are near acknowledge my might. He's got two audiences that he's teaching this lesson to. He says, listen, world, those who are far off, that's the nations, that's Assyria, and those who are near, that's Judah. But the message is the same, acknowledge my might. If you go back and you read the Exodus, Exodus is all about a question that Pharaoh asks. At the very, very beginning, when Moses comes before Pharaoh, and he says, The Lord has called us out to worship him in the wilderness. Set my people go. He says, who is the Lord? And if you read closely, every one of the plagues, God speaks and he says, so that Pharaoh might know that I am God. But if you read also, you'll see, so that all Israel might know that I am God. Okay. In fact, the climax in chapter 14 of Exodus at the Red Sea, God has three so that you might knows so that Egypt might know that I am God, so that Israel might know that I am God, so that Israel will know that you, Moses, are my servant. Okay? That last one's a little addendum there for the next 40 years. Okay? But God's purpose in the Exodus is one of self-revelation. That's because God's purpose is always one of self-revelation. Okay? When it says that God is after his own glory, that that is his purpose, and we read this everywhere, Why did Jesus become a man? He who was equal to God did not count it as robbery, to be counted equal as God, but made himself of no reputation, humbled himself in the form of a servant, obedient to the point of death, even in the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1. Why has God saved us? He predestined us to adoption as sons to the praise of his glorious grace. He sent his son to redeem us to the praise of his glorious grace. He sent the spirit to seal us to the praise of his glorious grace. It says it three times in Ephesians 1. Why did God create the world? Isaiah tells us a little bit later in the book that everything he created, he created for his glory. But another way of saying God glorifies himself is that he makes himself known. He puts on display who he really is. He shows and demonstrates who he is. And that's the agenda here. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? I don't think we always catch this in the story of Shenek Rim's army being wiped out in the middle of the night. Isaiah envisions the people inside Jerusalem, at other places, as being praising God, as worshiping God, as rejoicing, as being delivered and recognizing that. But there's a deeper thing going on. It's a remembrance. How close did they come to destruction? Who's truly sovereign right here? This is the type of God, the God who consumes armies in the middle of the night with no effort and no help. And they go, how will we stand? Right, it's a call to repentance. It's a reminder uh, that God is both good and holy, that he is both deliverer and judge. And so the question becomes, what now? And of course, obviously, Judah can't just go back to business as usual. The women can't be complacent anymore. The foolish counselors can't continue in their foolishness, right? That would just be to despise God's goodness. Romans tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But sometimes kindness just leads us to complacency. Sometimes it just lets us be. How often have we thought to ourselves, if God really cared what I was doing, he'd interfere. How many times have we been, you know, uh, like Jacob, next to the river, pinned by God himself and calling uncle, and then a few years later gone, "Ah, it was probably no big deal, and going back to our schemes, okay? Isaiah wants them to get the point. He wants them to understand what's going on, and so he says, here's the changes that need to happen. Here's what God is about, why he's allowed this to happen, verse 15, who can dwell in this city Verse 15, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. I want you to notice the order again here. It's deliverance first and righteousness second. It's not, Israel, because you've been righteous, I will deliver you. It's, Israel, I have delivered you. Now be righteous. And the Exodus follows the same pattern. God gives Israel the law, but not before he makes them free of their slavery. Not before he brings them out of Egypt. First, he redeems them. In fact, what does it say at the beginning of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord God. I have, past tense, redeemed you. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall not commit adultery. Therefore, okay, God's covenant begins with his grace. And we respond to that grace with obedience. Okay. Verse 17 Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, they will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Again, we see a contrast here. Eyes are doing one thing, seeing God's goodness, his beauty, his might, seeing a land that stretches unadulterated by enemy armies. But also, verse 18, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? In other words, where are the officials working for Assyria? The ones who were determining how much money you took home to your family. The ones who were determining how many towers of defense you were, because they didn't want you to get it too strong, right? How, many, how big your army could be. Who was the one who was, you know, um, who was determining all that? They're gone. And so there's a musing, there's a meditation on that. Verse 19, you will see no more of the insolent people. The people of an obscure uh, speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem in an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, now, Isaiah seems to look way down the pipeline of history here, right? He speaks of a time when Jerusalem will never be uprooted, but I'm sorry to spoil the story, but they survive Assyria, but not Babylon, and not Rome either, right? But he says there will be a time where the stake pegs will go so so deep, the tent will never be plucked. Zion will be the place of the appointed feasts, in fact, notice here, he mentions that uh, Zion will be a place of broad rivers and streams. Not currently, okay? So, so here's the thing you got to understand about capitals, na- national capitals and rivers, okay? Often they go hand in hand, okay? It's great for the economy because you have access to the oceans and that means access to the nations and those types of things. Uh, Jerusalem is very much not that. Uh, Israel has a coast on the Mediterranean. Jerusalem is not on it. You have to go to Tel Aviv for that, okay? Um, uh, But the reason rivers are being brought up here is both prosperity, but rivers come at a cost, okay? Which means if you can get a merchant ship out, someone else's naval ship can also get in, right? That's one of the... uh, One of the nice things about living landlocked is you're not really afraid of navies. It's not really a problem, okay? Uh, And so here, there's broad rivers and streams, but where no galley with oars can go, no majestic ships can pass. Many of the times that the Bible begins to paint pictures of what is to come, it does so in paradoxical ways, to make a point, okay? But it is interesting that when when we get to Zechariah, When we get to Ezekiel, he starts talking about a a day when the Lord himself is going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives, and it will be cracked open, and a river will flow, and that river will be so strong that it will replenish the Dead Sea, and it will be dead no longer, okay? I think that's Ezekiel 34, okay? Zechariah picks up on that same idea, okay? But that is to come. All of these things make me think here that Isaiah is looking beyond, and if he is not looking beyond here, he will be in the next chapter. And so at the very least, we can say here that he's laying parallel what's gone on with Shennacherib and Assyria and what he's going to do eventually, okay? Remember, there was a breaking of the covenant with Assyria. When we get to the book of Revelation, Jerusalem finds themselves in a covenant again, three and a half years, and then it's broken. And then Jerusalem is surrounded again, right? There's this reverberation in Israel's history over and over again that culminates in the things that Isaiah is talking about here. Why? Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. Now remember the idea of judge there is not the idea of a legal judge, it's the idea of the judge's judge, a deliverer, okay? The Lord is our king, he will save us. Okay, now look at verse 23, your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Now, many believe that verse 23 is taking that idea of boats that don't pass through and applying it to Assyria like it's uh, a, a ship that's run, a, run astern, run a rock, run aground. There we go. Um, a ship that's run aground. However, the language here is, uh, is not actually ship language. Okay? When it says here that they cannot hold the mast firm in its place, that's just the normal word used for flagstaff, right? If you're an army, you march with a banner. He says the staff isn't standing firm anymore. You remember uh, in, our, in our glorious baseball patri- uh, patron, what's the word? Wow, I can't think of that word. Anyways, uh, you know, the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursted in air, gave proof to the night that our flag was still there, right? That's significant, the Star-Spangled Banner, right? Okay? That's not here. The flag, flag doesn't make it through the night. No, no proof, because Assyria is gone, they're dead for it. When it says, or keep the sail spread out, again, this is just the normal word for banner, okay? The flags aren't flying anymore. The whole army's been decimated. In fact, notice, then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided even the lame will take the prey. Okay. 185,000 dead and all of the loot is left and there's no danger in going to gather it. Even the lame you know, can hobble out on their crutches and bring back some wealth because there's no one left to protect the dead. They're all dead. Okay. Verse 24, no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity, okay? Again, there's this reverberation, so what do we see here? A total destruction and a forgiveness that comes, and when we look at the end things in Zechariah, when we look in Revelation, we see the same thing. We start with armies surrounding Jerusalem, and then a moment later, the battle is over, okay? We start with, uh, you know, the Lord descending as deliverer, But then it says, they will look on him who they have pierced and mourn as an only son, Zechariah chapter 13 says. Okay. They click, they receive. In those days, as Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Forgiveness is part of this too. Um, It's hard to tell which one is being talked about here, but that ends in verse 24. In chapter 34, he looks all the way forward. And we know this for a few reasons. One, because he's going to start talking about the entire earth in a second. Okay. two, because structurally, chapter 34 is, um, okay, think of a door. A door swings on a hinge, and a hinge has two parts, right? Chapter 34 is the hinge for the first half of Isaiah. Chapter 35 is the hinge for the second half, okay? And so appropriately here, chapter 34 perfectly parallels chapter 13. Now, if you remember right, in the structure of the book, The oracles concerning judgment that begin in chapter 13 and run all the way to 18 and then don't trust in Egypt leads us all the way up here. This closes the first big section of the book, okay? And so we have the introduction, 1 through 5 and 6. Then we have the book of Emmanuel, 7 through 12. And then we have the book of judgment. And chapter 34 is the hinge of that first half of the book. Chapter 35, right next to it, tells us what's to come. And then 36, 37, 38, 39, which we'll look at next week, uh, are the historical happenings of Isaiah's ministry. And then chapter 40, we jump, in, we jump into the second half of the book. Okay? So chapter 34 brings us to, um, to the middle of the book, the dead middle. Okay, But notice here, he builds on these same ideas, but it steps out of the historical setting of Assyria surrounding Judah, and looks forward to a judgment that's going to come on the whole earth. Draw near, O nations, to hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. Do you hear how inclusive that is? All the peoples, all the nations, the whole earth, all the world, and everything in it. Okay. Universal, verse 2, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. Now I want you to notice, and I can't speak for your translation, but in the ESV, verse two, verse five, uh, in the middle of verse six, and verse eight, all begin with the little word for, okay? It's a repeated part of the structure here. Um, this little word, key in the Hebrew, um, usually means surely or truly. In some of the older translations, that's what it says. Surely the Lord is enraged, Okay. I would suggest to you that's probably the the meaning that Isaiah is trying to suggest. He's not giving logical reasons here. He's giving assurance of what's to come, okay? Surely the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Now this is classic Old Testament God of judgment, but it's worth remembering that this isn't just Old Testament God of judgment. This is the same language that John uses in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 14 verse 17. 14:17 then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Now pause. Jesus often uses harvest metaphors to speak of salvation. Remember what he tells his disciples in John chapter 4? Look out for the fields are ripe with harvest. He means people are ready to become Christians, to enter into the kingdom of God, right? This is not that type of harvest. In fact, look at verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay? Okay. And so the picture here is one of tremendous judgment, and the picture is one that's bloody. I did a project once for a college group called um, Bible Stories That Don't Make Good Children's Ministry Crafts, okay? This is one of them, okay? If you did a color by numbers for the wine press of the wrath of God, you only need one equals red. The whole thing is just blood red, okay? But notice Notice who it is who treads this winepress uh, wine in Revelation 19. 19 verse 15, speaking of Jesus says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Okay. This is Jesus, the same Jesus of the Gospels, the same one Uh, that John writes about in his Gospels, he writes about here. He sees him coming, and he sees him coming in judgment. Okay, And so Isaiah here is talking about the same thing. He's talking about a final culmination when God's patience with sin runs out. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. When it says that God is long-suffering and patient, if God never ends that patience, if he never ends, brings justice instead of being long-suffering, then he's not patient, he's indifferent. Sin is objectively against the rule of God and destructive against the things he created and loves. And so the Bible maintains, and Isaiah looks forward here, and he reminds them that judgment is coming upon the whole earth, In fact, notice it's cosmic in its nature. Verse 4, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and all their hosts, that's the stars, shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. Okay, and so there's this cosmic destruction, and again, the New Testament makes the same case. Peter says, one of these days, although God once judged the world in water... He will now judge it in fire and the elements themselves will be dissolved as in a fervent heat. And Jesus himself and Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, These things you're seeing here are the things that were written. My spirit will be poured out on all types of people. And then the moon will be as though with blood and the sun will be destroyed and the stars will disappear. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a consistency. There's a unity. um, There's a trajectory here. Um, and a choir of voices speaking of this reality. Let's continue, verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Okay. Now, we go from being very universal to being tremendously specific, a very small people group, a tiny little nation, the Edomites. Okay. That would be the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Okay. Most likely, just like Moab in 2510, this is a placeholder for the wicked. Okay. Um, it may have uh, geographical significance because the area of Edom is right on the boundaries of Israel, and this is where this whole uh, whole happening, what we call Armageddon, goes down, okay? Um, but here, Edom is just a stand-in for the wicked, okay? He says, "'Upon the people I've devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword, it's sated with blood, it's gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and rams.'" Fat and blood of lambs and goats, kidneys. What does that sound like? It sounds like Leviticus, right? It's sacrificial language. Okay, in fact, notice it gets clear here. "'Surely,' there's that word for again, "'the Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra, "'a great slaughter in the land of Edom. "'Wild oxen shall fall with them, And young steers with the mighty bull, their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Okay. And so there's contrasting sacrifices here. Remember, Isaiah is going to get to chapter 53, and he's going to lay out the one who died for the sins of my people. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone his way, but the Lord laid our sins upon his shoulders, and by his righteousness many were made righteous or by his death, many were made righteous, right? But here's a second sacrifice, okay? There's, there's a choice here. God has presented an option. He's laid forgiveness on a table, but like C.S. Lewis says, what do you want God to do? To pay the full price and to, to freely forgive everything? What if they won't be forgiven? And so sacrificial language is used here, and then again in verse 8, 4, or literally, surely the Lord has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur and her land shall become burning pitch. Okay, here he takes on the language of Sodom, right? This destruction of fire. And he applies it here to Edom. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste and none shall pass through it forever and ever. Okay, the language there is one of permanence and finality right? Uh, Notice verse 11. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall uh, dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. There's a little bit of irony there. What do you use um, a plumb line for? And what do you stretch a line over something for? They're construction tools for measuring. But here, it's the line of confusion. It's the plumb line of emptiness, okay? It should be for building, but it's for destruction. Verse 12, it's nobles. There's no one that can call it a kingdom, and its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunts of jackals and abodes for ostriches, and wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Now, it's possible there. Um, if you've ever heard a teaching on this passage, or if you have an older translation it might refer to the satyr there, right? Like Pan, a goat person, okay? In fact, some suggest here that the language is, in, especially where it refers in the next line, indeed the night bird, that's where we get the word Lilith, which is just a word that means night, right? This um, demonic entity uh, that makes it into some of the creation myths of post-Jewish understanding. And so some suggest here the idea is not that it's a haunt for wild animals, but a haunt for the demonic, but it's really a stretch. Uh, the idea clearly, is, 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 he, is he, the idea here is clearly that what was civilized is given back to uncivilized, becomes wilderness again, becomes only an inhabitant for animals. In fact, he builds on that verse 15. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her youngs in her shadow. Indeed, there hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Okay. Then notice this in verse 16. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. That's interesting. Here he mentions the scroll of the Lord. We have to ask, okay, so what is Isaiah saying here? Is he reaching back and saying, what I'm telling you now, you already know. It's already been written about. Some suggest that in uh, Isaiah 13, since there's some similar imagery of wilderness and animals overrunning it, that Isaiah is saying, it's already been written about, just read it, it's there, okay? Um, But it may be, especially depending on the grammar in this verse, it may be that he's giving an exhortation about what we're reading right now, okay? Again, his whole point in this passage has been one of surety. He says, thus it has been written, and thus it will be. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without a mate. The animals that I've told you that dwell in the land, he's like, put them in your bird book, go out and count them. They'll be there, okay? For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. I just want you to notice the connection between four things here. A book, a mouth, a command, and the spirit. This is Isaiah's doctrine of the Bible. The written word comes from the mouth of God, is authoritative over us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is a consistent understanding of what the Bible is from Old to New Testament. That's why in Isaiah 55, he tells us that not a word that God speaks will return empty but all that he said will be accomplished. It's why in Isaiah uh, 44 through 49, he says, what other gods have declared the end from the beginning and said it will be so? He says, this is how you know that I am truly God because my word is final and will come to pass. It's why Peter lays out the same idea in the New Testament when he says that no prophecy is of private interpretation, but men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's why Paul says the same thing, that all scripture is divinely inspired by God and is therefore profitable. But Isaiah's understanding is here too. He says, you can read the scroll that I've written and you can know that it carries the very command of God himself from his mouth through the power of the spirit. Verse 17, he casts lot for them, His hand was portioned out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. Who's they there? The birds. But why does this language sound familiar? Because it's how God gives Israel the land, right? He brings them into it. They cast lots for it. It's their possession forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. He's intentionally using this language of how Israel came into the land. And he says, that's what I'm going to do with the animals because Edom is over, okay? Now, it may be that we should read this, and honestly, the fact that he says go out and count is probably a pretty solid reason to do so, as being as literal as we would expect it to be, okay? That there will come a time where this land is abandoned to the animals and never redeemed, okay? But notice the shift in 35 verse one. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing okay now there's two types of wilderness there's the wilderness of nothing the wilderness where nothing grows the wilderness that's been abandoned and then there's the wilderness of fruitfulness okay and they're back to back right here okay remember I said chapter 34 is a hinge for the first half of the book and the first half of the book has all been about judgment and the discipline that God's going to bring on Israel chapter 35 seems out of place because he basically says, I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm going to wipe out Edom. It's going to be a burning pit where nothing lives but animals. And then notice in chapter 35 how he says something completely different. He says, I'm going to take the wasteland and make it a garden of Eden. I'm going to take the people and give them peace. I'm going to bring life. In chapter 34, it's death and here it's life. Okay. Now, I think one of the things that we should do as we're reading here is we should go, wait, what, how? How do these two things go together? We've talked before about how Isaiah is organized in a way that creates a tension. And the first tension we've heard is, how is it that God is going to take an unfaithful Israel and bring about forgiveness and justice? How is he going to do both? And he's going to resolve that. But now we have a second one. How is God going to bring the full judgment, the winepress of the wrath of God on earth, how is he going to bring about a, cons- a cosmic wiping of the slate and new heavens and the new earth? And I think what's most important for us tonight is to notice that he's going to do one in order to do the other. Okay? God's final word for the world is not one of judgment. Okay? God's final word is not Blood running as high as the stadia, it's and there was no death, and no crying, and no sin enters its gates, and God was their light, and God was their shelter. It's it keeps going, the story keeps going, and Isaiah does the same thing here. Let's keep reading. He says The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. We're almost tempted to go, who? Who's left to see it, right? But it's just left here. And then notice what Isaiah wants us to do with the information we've just read, verse three. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. He sees this as being an encouragement. He says stuff is going to get rough. It's going to be hard. In fact, did you notice back in chapter uh, 34 that God says one of the reasons he's going to do this, verse eight, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. One of the things on the big list of the wickedness of the nations is their treatment of God's people. Remember in the book of Revelation, there's all of the martyrs underneath the altar. Maybe they're underneath the throne and they're crying out, How long? How long till you bring justice for all of the blood, our blood that's been shed? Okay. There's a correlation in these things. Okay. Isaiah is looking at a people who are going to be under the thumb of an enemy people, who are going to go through tremendous suffering. He's looking down a history and he's seeing all of the horrible things that will be done to God's people. And he says, but there's coming a time where the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And he says, therefore, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Not, not because there's nothing coming that isn't scary, but because we've read the final chapter because we know what comes next. Look, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of a mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Okay, and so there's this blooming. Out of the destruction, there's this blooming of wilderness. Uh, Think of what happened with Mount St. Helens, okay, five years after it erupted and suddenly life came back in abundance. Think of the Fantasia sketch from the newer one that Fantasia 2000, where the volcano goes off and it's all black, and then suddenly greater life comes out of it. This is the image that Isaiah wants us to get here. In fact, notice verse 8 a highway shall be there. Okay, so far we've just talked about a fruitful place with no people, but a highway means people. In fact, it means a lot of people, right? You don't build a highway from your garage to your woodshed. A highway is for many people. In fact, notice a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And so he envisions this broad walkway that will be used where nothing unclean will enter because because the clean will be present, and that's all there is. In fact, verse 9, no lion shall be there, no any ravenous beast shall come upon it, but they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Notice the word there. It's not even the righteous, although that'd be a fine word to use, but the redeemed. Okay, that means brought out of one state and into another state. Those are the ones who are worthy to walk the road of holiness, those who God has saved. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is just a glimpse. It's just an impressionist painting of what God's going to do. Okay? It's going to be developed more specifically and more fully going forward. But it's so surprising at this point of the book because we've gone through twelve chapters of consequence and judgment and justice that is deserved but is still dire. And then suddenly Isaiah pulls back the curtain and he says, And then, and then something new and then life, and holiness, and wisdom, and joy, and rejoicing, and gladness, and no more sorrow. In fact, I want you to notice um, two things here. Uh, One of them is not in my translation, but that's okay. I know it is in the later chapter, so I'll leave it there. But notice that it says, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I love the active way. It's not pass away; it's run away. Sorrow and sighing will run away. Okay, it's such strong language for what God is going to do. And this really gives us a glimpse to where Isaiah is going to go. It doesn't mean there isn't more judgment in the book to come, but there's going to be some surprises for sure. And when we come out the other end, when judgment falls on the servant of Isaiah 53. Then we get to some of the sweetest prophecies in all of scripture, chapters 54 through 66, where he starts to talk about all the things that are gonna flow out of that single act of sacrificial obedience. But here's where we get our first glimpse. And again, this is the foundation for the end of the book of Revelation. And so listen to these words that John writes and listen to them in the context of those final words we just read. beginning in chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, No, anyone who does what's detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And just one more place, look at verse four of chapter 21. Uh, In fact, verse three, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer for us tonight is that where we are feeble in knee, we would be strengthened. And where we are failing, we would be encouraged. Lord, not all of us have been pressed to the point of blood. Not of all of us have ever been led to a place to crawl, call high, how long. Not all of us have experienced what Paul did when he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? But all of us, because your spirit is alive in us, have joined with your spirit and all of creation in groaning and longing for the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of us as your sons. I pray that we would be strengthened in that, we would be encouraged in that. I pray, Lord, that we would see the seriousness of sin and the reality of judgment, but also the tremendous victory of our Savior God and the free and loving offer that is so much more than justice. It is grace abundant. Where sin abounded, grace has abounded much more. Your destiny for us is greater than we ever dreamed, greater than we ever hoped. We could have never imagined, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, nor would have entered into our heads what God has prepared for those who love him. God, I pray that these realities would take hold of us, that we wouldn't be complacent, that we would answer the question that Peter asks us, if this is what is to come, what type of lives should we lead? And I pray, Lord, that the answer would be ones filled with joy and hope and holiness and one that spares no expense for your glory because you spared no expense in coming to get us. We praise you for that tonight, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.